0: Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz.
1: And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and who love history and making things. And we normally start by talking about what we've been making or cooking slash baking recently. So what have you been up to?
0: Um, I've mostly been up to having COVID. Mm. But after last episode, we did make rhubarb crumble. Which, I've, I've never had rhubarb before. I've had, like, the rhubarb and custard sweets.
1: Oh, yeah. Those but are nice. I hadn't
0: had actual rhubarb. Okay. Turns out rhubarb crumble is great.
1: I mean, you live so close to the rhubarb triangle. How have you not? I live in Lancashire. That's next to Yorkshire. <laughs> Unless you don't want to support the Yorkshire economy, in which case, you know. No. <laughs> I'm glad
0: you liked it, though.
2: It was really good,
0: and it is April's Patreon recipe.
1: Good. That's how tasty it was. <laughs> Actually, related. Um, I made the kareshi uh, ribas, the um, Persian rhubarb lamb stew. Oh,
0: how was the it the other day?
1: Yeah. Also, after the last episode, I guess we've just been on like a rhubarb craving after that.
0: Well, it's spring. <laughs>
1: It is. I'm rhubarb. Um it was really nice. Yeah, I was quite skeptical about how it would be as a, a savory flavor. Um but it wasn't as sour as I was expecting. It mm. was I mean it was sour, but just when you eat the rhubarb like not in the whole entire stew. So I, it balanced quite well and the herb flavors went went really nice with it. So yeah, it was it was really good. Would re- recommend. I forgot to take any pictures or anything, but um I will put up the link to the recipe I used if anyone else wants to make it.
0: It does sound very good. Mm. But yeah, I have I have not done a lot of making. I have mostly just been making progress on existing things. Although I did I've now completed both creatures and the ocean on my big cross stitch project. So I'm currently nice. working on the mountain in the background. Cause it's got. It's got Mount Fuji in the background, ah, oh. and then I'm gonna do like a sky thing. But I'm just working on the mountain at the moment in four, five different shades of purple.
2: Okay, nice.
1: How are you gonna display it when it's done?
0: I'm gonna attach it to the back of my denim jacket like a giant patch.
1: Oh, amazing! <laughs> <laughs> why not? exactly that is that is the best thing about making stuff is that you can just why not <laughs> um I haven't really this is uncharacteristic for me but I've spent the last few weeks only working on one project and that's a knitted lace shawl I mean um, that,
0: that takes a lot of
1: work to be fair it it does <laughs> And I think, because I'm doing a lot of different things at the moment in non-podcast life, it's just nice to have the continuity of, like, one thing sometimes. Mm. Um, Surprisingly, you can make a lot of progress when you just work on one thing for a few weeks. What? (laughs) I know. um, It's also in cobweb um, weight yarn, which is one of the thinnest yarns you can get, so...
0: It's basically the thinnest thing that isn't thread.
1: It is diaphanous. It's yeah. It's it's really nice. Um, which is the first time I've worked with that. I think.
0: And Shetland with being cobweb or sorry, is it with it being cobweb? Is it Shetland or
1: um, this particular one isn't. No, it's um, just like a a nice shawl design that I found. Um, It's not like a traditional Shetland one, but I—that is an ambition. I do one day want to make like a Shetland cobweb, so. Um, But it's not been as scary as I thought working with it. It's just like you know, slightly thinner lace. So, Mm. yeah, that has that has been nice. I'm on the border. I do love a
0: knitted on border, so. I mean, that's good practice for Shetland because most of the patterns i looked at when i was doing mine had a knitted on border
1: okay yeah it does seem to be like quite it does seem to be that for a lot of them especially the big square ones like you knit the border first and then you pick up stitches along the border and work in yeah um yeah yeah interesting construction so but i like it because it just feels so clever like the way you're attaching the border as you go like it's
0: oh. it feels like you're cheating <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: And it's fun to like, because it's all bunched up on the needles, especially if you're in a circular. And then as you knit on the border, it just like flattens out and like emerges. And it's great. Anyway, um, (laughs) I'll stop talking about my knitting in such detail. And we can go on to the episode. What are we going to talk about?
0: Um, It's a very special kind of house. (laughs) It's a
2: lighthouse. okay i'm excited i like them <laughs> um,
0: certain parts of the internet have been thinking a lot about the symbolism of lighthouses
1: lately really okay um, that's a reference i don't get oh, i also uh, like lighthouses
0: Our uh, uh, flag means death oh what sorry a uh, flag means death it has there's a, a running thing of lighthouses
1: oh i still haven't watched that <laughs> I'm gonna have to watch it before all of my friends have finished it. Otherwise, I'm gonna miss the moment. But but I do like lighthouses, regardless. Lighthouses are cool. They are cool. They are very cool. I live near a famous one.
0: Oh, which one?
1: Um, I'm not gonna say because then people will know where I live. I mean, you've already said where you live before. Have I? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's the Bell Toot Lighthouse on the South Downs, um, which was famously moved back from the cliff about twenty years ago, I think. Um they just like picked up the whole entire thing and just moved it. <laughs> Why? Because it's no longer a working lighthouse and people live there and they didn't want it to fall into the sea. Okay, that
0: I'll give them that, that's fair.
1: But there is a new one that is um like actually a lighthouse, it's in the sea, um just underneath, and it's a classic red and white stripe. It's very good.
0: Yeah, I was a little bit sort of borderline whether this comes under our sort of purview. But I, I think I think it does.
2: I think it's adjacent, if nothing else. I'm into it.
0: so what the first lighthouse was is kind of one of these debates ooh um yeah so there is a legend about um, Palamedes who shows up in various Trojan War things inventing the first lighthouse
2: inventing
0: um, basically coming up with the idea of um, signal fires on platforms to show where the coast is for ships. Ah, that's um, not a house. But Palamedes isn't real. <laughs> um, the earliest lighthouses that we know about for definite are in uh, Greece and Egypt. We probably heard of the, the lighthouse of Alexandria.
1: I have, yeah, yeah. Is that, um, did they possibly find the remains of that a few years ago?
0: Um, I'm going to have to to look up whether they yeah, did. I
1: remember something about it, or did I confuse that with another thing? I don't know.
0: Um, oh, yeah, in, in the 90s, they found uh, possibly the remains of the lighthouse.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I've heard of... Was that one of the Wonders of the World, the Lighthouse of Alexandria? The
0: Wonders of the Ancient World, yeah. Okay. Um, At the time, it was the tallest man-made structure in the world. Wow. At the time being um, the 3rd century BC, It was thought to have been at least 100 metres tall. However, um, there were some excavations in uh, Gujarat where they may have found uh, what's called a platform lighthouse, which is basically like a 10-foot platform that would have had the fire on top. Okay. Um, from potentially 2000 BC. Wow. See, This is why I say, yeah, the earliest lighthouse really depends on your definition of lighthouse. Okay. <clears throat> because we kind of, the progression is from signal fires on hills to mark... Where the ports are, because obviously you don't don't have artificial light, so it's it's more about here is where is safe rather than here is a big string of lights to show you where it isn't safe. Mm-hmm. Two fires on platforms, two actual. I was gonna say purpose built structures, but the platforms were probably built for that purpose. But like buildings,
2: more sort of permanent. Yeah, yeah houses
0: see the definition of a lighthouse as a house is tricky (laughs) because people didn't live in most of them like you would spend your day in there but more because this was your place of work like your your family would live elsewhere and you would go to them for most of history it wouldn't be this is my house it has a light on
1: it i think my rule of thumb is if you can make tea in it it's a house.
0: I mean, by that logic, a tent is a house. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Flawless. (laughs) Um, So there's theories that they may have used uh, glass lenses to magnify those fires. Right. Uh, But we don't have any evidence of that, sadly. It's just kind of a, well, they must have.
1: That's a shame because that would be really cool.
0: Yeah, like I, I, I definitely support the well, they must have theory because that's basically what we've always been doing <laughs> in lighthouses. Is we'll put this special glass in front of it and we'll make the fire bigger and brighter. Interestingly, actually, the um, the sort of stereotypical lighthouse lens.
1: The kind of ripply one,
0: yeah. Um, that wasn't actually introduced until the seventeen uh, hundreds. Oh, uh, it's called a Fresnel lens. So how it works is it's reflective on the inside, and then those concentric circles. Um, please note that I am not an optics expert. Um, Another list
2: of things that we are not experts in.
0: <laughs> they sort of uh refract the light so you get this because it's reflected around so much it's it's brighter than the original light and then it sort of shoots it out in this big wide bright beam. Yeah, before that you had um just mirrored boxes that you would have them in.
2: hmm Which
0: are called uh, catoptric mirrors.
1: That's a good name.
0: Yeah, so we get Obviously, we get lighthouses because they they show up in um, like Trojan War stuff. Obviously, we have them in the Roman era. There's one in uh, A Coruña in Galicia, which is actually still functional from the Roman era.
1: Oh my goodness!
0: Obviously, it's had some upgrades, but it's the same basic lighthouse.
1: Okay, this uh, that it's still used for its. Purpose. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: Um sorry. My my brain isn't functioning.
1: Right, you had the Rona.
0: But yeah, in in the US actually we get some quite old ones. Uh we have the first purpose built one in North America, seventeen sixteen. Okay. Uh which is in Massachusetts. But there's There's a lot of speculation, it seems, that because there's a lot of structures with towers on coasts pretty much everywhere. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the idea of, is the reason we're not finding evidence or accounts of a lot of purpose-built lighthouses before this point that they were just using the towers that were already there? Because if you're just indicating the port... You don't need a hugely bright light, you just need something visible. So you can just have a fire in a watchtower or something similar.
2: hmm So yeah, we get sorry. Where do you get the kind of
1: stereotypical um like lighthouse keeper lighthouse then? Because that when I think of lighthouses, I think of that there's a load load of like Spooky stories and things about lighthouse keepers and how the rule that there has to be two of them or something. And I, I mean, is that all true?
0: I am gonna get to this.
1: Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> um, I, I, have a
0: story for the end. Okay. Um. So yeah, you start getting in the early modern period. Um, for example, uh, sixteen eleven in uh, Cordouan in France. You start getting much more elaborate purpose built structures. Um. The one in Cordona on is absolutely gorgeous actually. I'm going to I will post a picture, but I'm also going to send one to Hazel because you get this um quite I think neoclassical structure. Oh wow. It's, it's then has the more modern lighthouse just kind of built on <laughs> top of it, which is quite fun. Yeah. So you can see it kind of it kind of looks like a Roman rotunda. It's that very sort of early renaissance, we're just going to make stuff look Roman kind of vibe.
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: It's got a lot of windows.
0: Well, you you need to be able to let a lot of light in, I suppose, for the the people in there. Yeah. So yeah, eventually you get... Interestingly, you don't really seem to get basic, almost like hearth fires replaced with lamps until the 1780s. Okay. When they get replaced with oil lamps with these mirrors and lenses. Um, The first one of that kind of classic, vaguely conical shape seems to be the Eddystone Lighthouse, which is uh, near Plymouth, uh, UK Plymouth, I should clarify. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there's a rocky area near Plymouth Sound called the Eddystone Rocks which were incredibly difficult to build on, but also quite dangerous to shipping. Mm-hmm. So you want you want to indicate where those rocks are. Um, and then you end up with granite blocks fixed together with dovetail joints, marble doweling, and something called hydraulic lime, which is a special kind of cement that sets
2: underwater oh
1: wow I didn't know that was a thing
2: yeah it's
0: I mean it wasn't for a long time (laughs) yeah so originally it had a wooden lighthouse which was constructed in the 1690s but unsurprisingly was destroyed by a storm not long after
2: Mm -hmm. because
0: it was Made of wood. <laughs> um, so this new design was by a guy called John Rudyard who was actually a silk merchant and property developer. Okay, but he designed this lighthouse
1: just for funsies, which
0: actually lasted until it burnt down.
1: Oh, how did you burn? I was about to say how did you burn a lighthouse down, and then I remembered that they have a big fire in them.
0: Specifically, an oil lantern. (laughs) Yeah, Um, which, yeah, throwing seawater isn't going to do anything on that. Mm. Uh, One of the lighthouse keepers at the time was ninety-four years old. Gosh, just a fun fact. Okay, (laughs) is it a good retirement job? Um, it was the seventeen fifties. I don't think such a thing existed. Um, but there yeah then you get um Robert Stevenson, not to be confused with Robert Lewis Stevenson or George Stevenson, although Stevenson,
1: although is Robert Lewis Stevenson a relative of the lighthouse, Robert Stevenson?
0: not as far as I can tell, um but yeah, so he was on the Northern Lighthouse board, um because he was Scottish, so obviously in the northern bit. In 1810, he added the idea of a specifically rotating light. So it would be more distinct from just a light on the coast. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was also under his tenure that they started painting that iconic stripe on the lighthouses. Oh. With apparently a lot... In the same area, you would generally have different patterns on the lighthouses and sometimes blue paint instead of or as well as red so that you could distinguish them better from far away. Okay. Which I think is quite fun.
1: Yeah. Um, Okay, so I I think I confused it. I remembered hearing something about Robert Stevenson and being related to another... Famous Stevenson, and it turns out that his dad invented the locomotive. I think that's it.
0: Did he? Is that Robert Louis Stevenson's dad was a lighthouse designer? Oh!
2: But not In that case. this
0: lighthouse designer.
2: <laughs> oh no, I got the wrong lighthouse man.
0: Um. Oh, I, I was wrong about the relationship, though. This guy is Robert Louis Stevenson's grandfather.
2: Oh, I got the right lighthouse man!
0: <laughs> right, light, is... right lighthouse man, wrong relation. <laughs> yeah, so I I guess we were both
2: wrong.
1: This has been a roller coaster. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um But yeah, so interestingly, most lighthouses in the UK were privately owned until
1: 1836. What? I mean I guess now that I think about it, that doesn't seem weird because it was before publicly owned things, but...
0: Yeah, they were mostly sponsored by, you know, companies with a vested interest in keeping shipping safe. I guess that would make sense. Um, But yeah, they were brought under the control of um, what's called Trinity House because in those days, all the branches of government were just named after the building they were in. Um, yeah, in 1836, when this and that's when they started going, okay, all of the lighthouses have to have this, this, and this in order to make sure that they're functional and safe. Were they not? I mean, I told you about the 94-year-old lighthouse keeper, right?
2: Okay, point taken. <laughs>
0: um... Yeah, but also things like making sure that they all had these Fresnel lenses. Okay. And providing a specific salary for the lighthouse keepers. Oh, good. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a little bit shorter than usual, but I do first want to tell you about the reason that there are three people in a lighthouse. Okay. I think I've heard of this story before, but I, yeah, Maybe I don't. The Smalls Lighthouse tragedy. Okay. So, the Smalls Lighthouse is a significant distance off the Welsh coast, um, specifically off Pembrokeshire, I think. So, the story is that there were uh, two. Lighthouse Keepers, as was normal at the time. Uh, This is 1801. Uh, Thomas Mm -hmm. Howell or Thomas Griffith, who people knew that they didn't get on, which Um. is already one problem with just having two people stuck on a very small island for weeks or months at a time.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: So Griffith died... Um, just as an accident, because obviously this is a dangerous job. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Howell sort of built a makeshift coffin for him, because he was worried that if he just, you know, buried him at sea, quote-unquote, everyone would assume that he killed him, which, to be fair, they probably would have. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... The story goes that a strong wind blew the coffin apart and Griffith's body was thrown basically against the window and apparently the arm blew as though it was beckoning. Um, And obviously it was not doing particularly well by this point. Oh, just in terms of freshness. Oh no. And how, you know, he didn't have a way to inform anyone that this had happened. So he kept working the lighthouse on his own. Uh-huh. Um, by the time that the next team came, he was just a broken man. Uh. Because he'd been basically just alone with a body. For a very (laughs) long time. Uh. Um, So they changed the policy to make sure that there would always be at least three people in the lighthouse in case something happened to one of them. And it remained as three people until 1980s, when they switched over to mostly automated lighthouses. Wow. Anyone who's watched it... We'll be unsurprised to learn that this incident was part of the inspiration for the 2019 film, The Lighthouse.
1: I have not seen that film.
0: It is very good. It's very spooky. It's okay. about two people who go to work a lighthouse and they don't get on very well and then spooky stuff happens.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, that looks... Oh, it looks spooky. I'm Willem Dafoe's in it. Okay.
0: Willem Defoe and Robert Pattinson, it's very good.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. No, oh, it's Robert Pattinson. Okay, okay. That sounds like a thing that I would definitely want. Um Robert Pattinson is in some like actually good films these days. Um Okay, I can yeah, I can kind of see where the whole spooky lighthouse thing came from now. Yeah, because you you just you kept having
0: incidents because, you know, it's something that is built to be in a dangerous place. Mm. It's isolated. So you simultaneously get this kind of very romanticized idea of the isolation, especially, you know, you start getting whole literary movements that are about, ah, the sea and the being alone, and it's all very capital R romantic. Yeah. When at the oh, same good. time,
2: people keep dying. Mmm. It's i guess spooky. it's it's easy to romanticize something when you don't have to actually do it yeah
0: yeah i don't think i would enjoy being a lighthouse keeper no so that that is my brief history of lighthouse
1: i enjoyed it it was interesting and slightly unsettling um I do want to look up ancient lighthouses now, though, because that sounds cool.
0: There's some very cool pictures of the lighthouse of Alexandria. Neat. So what, I... is, what is our local larder this week?
1: Um, it is something kind of relevant to the time of year. Um, so this past weekend, it has simultaneously been Easter passover and ramadan i think for the first time in quite a long time
0: yeah like 30 something years i think
1: mm. um so i thought you know in honor of that i would do a food related to one of those things and we already did easter hot cross buns i think um either last year or the year before um so i'm going to do a traditional Ramadan food um, so Ramadan of course being the Islamic holy month of fasting um, where you fast from dawn till dusk so you don't eat and drink anything between those hours um, but before dawn and after sunset there are the traditional meals of Suhor and Iftar um, and um, sort of leading up to the festival of Eid Um, which is another one that has a lot of cool foods that we can talk about. Um, but the food I'm going to talk about today is a food that is apparently very popular, um, and traditionally eaten in many Arabic countries during Ramadan. Um, especially for like the after sunset meal, um, it's, it's a kind of like sweet food, although it does have savory variants and it's called kataya um part of these if i
2: don't pronounce this perfectly um
1: and that's spelled q a t a y e f and it is basically a filled pancake okay they, they look, look they look delicious i'm going to send you a picture um this will also be up on the Swiss Earth when this episode comes out there you go
0: oh those look yummy
1: <laughs> it looks so good so it is pistachio yeah <laughs> so KateF is a, a stuffed pancake um it can be sweet or savory so they can have like cheese inside and be deep fried um or this specific version that i have just sent you um, Liz is called Katayef Asafiri, which means size of a small bird, apparently. And they're like kind of mini ones that are a sweet version. They're stuffed with cream and like flavored cream. Um, and like they've got pistachios. And apparently there's a syrup as well. Um, and it's like flavored with rose water and like it.
0: It's oh, so gorgeous.
1: They sound so good. Oh, it's a semolina pancake, by the way. Um yeah. It sounds amazing. And they look amazing. I don't I really want to try them now. So apparently um these are like really popular um across many Arabic countries during Ramadan um for like a, a little kind of after dinner treat. Um or you could have some savory with uh, the pre-dawn meal as well. Um and yeah just like a little a little sweet thing um that you can have after dinner and they are eaten at other times of the year but um they are popular enough that it is like quite associated with Ramadan um so the sweet version as well the um the cheesy version it looks like they're normally like fully closed kind of like a pasty and then deep fried um, whereas the unfried version is they just sort of close it on one side and then you stuff the pancake so it's like open um
0: yeah it looks like kind of a little cone almost like you
2: do yeah
1: (laughs) yeah just like little little cone parcels um yeah so these uh i had i had a look into sort of the history of these as much as they i can find um and they seem to go fairly far back in uh sort of arabic culture um no one like like with a lot of these things it's kind of unclear exactly where they came from um apparently they used to be um just pretty much more of a savory thing but Over the years there have been lots of different versions. And there are different versions in the sort of different countries. Um so the recipe that I've got um that I will link to um is an Egyptian one. It's got pistachios. Um but apparently you can also have like walnuts with it, or it can be, you know, deep-fried, not deep-fried um different flavorings, um, can have like hazelnuts or almonds, you can have raisins in it, it can be baked as well. Like yeah, just oh. so many different kinds and now I want to try them all. So the first concrete mention of it, um although it's sort of there's a, a sort of rumour that it might go back to the Fatimid dynasty, but the first mention of it in history is from a cookbook called the book of dishes that dates back to the abbasid caliphate so that's in the 10th century which is kind of an interesting book that um we might need to check out for one of our book episodes
0: definitely
1: yeah (laughs) um so apparently the medieval version um was although um one of the traditional versions like i said was like cheese and nuts um apparently in the medieval cookbooks it is filled with crushed almond and sugar
0: oh like a marzipan
1: yeah kind of marzipan tasting and sometimes it would be like baked and fried or fried in walnut oil Okay yeah um, <laughs> which actually will be familiar to uh some of the recipes in the medieval british cookbooks because like there were in a lot of the um more high status recipes um from britain at the time there is there is a lot more like despite um i guess hollywood stereotypes um there's actually quite a lot of Middle Eastern influence on British cooking. Um,
0: I mean, that makes sense, because, pe- you know, we we were popping over to the Middle East fairly often for terrible reasons and also for trade.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, combinations of those things. I mean, not not only for terrible reasons, it was also like, you know, people... Oh yeah like traded and like well. went around and saw each other and were like oh that thing is delicious i'm going to bring it back but you know also terrible reasons yeah um and uh, but yeah so there is actually um kind of a lot of this this flavor in traditional british cooking as well but um anyway back to the katayaf um, so that's kind of like the umbrella And then there's lots of different versions. Um, And yeah, that's kind of it really. It's it's a pretty short one. I couldn't find that much more on the history. Um, But it is a recipe that seems to be really, um, really associated with Ramadan and really popular. And I can see why it continues to be really popular because they both look and sound delicious.
0: They really do.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to put up this recipe for katayef Asafiri on the Twitter in case anyone wants to give it a go. Um, and if you're someone that has made it, then please let us know and maybe like if there's anything special to your recipe.
0: So thank you for listening. Um, as I mentioned at the start, we do have a Patreon at Bread and Thread. you want access to a discord where we chat about food and crafts and just whatever we feel like talking about as well as monthly patreon recipes
1: Uh, we have also have a twitter under bread and thread where we will tweet uh pictures of things that we talk about on the show um teasers for upcoming episodes and just like tweet about related things to our podcast uh, you
0: can find those same things on Tumblr at Bread and Thread.
1: We are also on YouTube, Bread and Thread, where we have um, YouTube versions of our episodes. So still just the audio, but um, on the YouTube because some people prefer it that way.
0: And we also have an email if you want to, you know, send us your recipe, or if you want to suggest an episode. We we have received a few suggestions that we are. Definitely getting to, but people tend to suggest ones that require a lot of research, so you gotta wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's everything.
2: We will see you next time.